0: So we're going to be looking, like I said, in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2 of uh, 1 John, um, six, wor- six verses. Um, within these six verses, John is able to thoroughly encourage his readers. He spends the first section uh, encouraging, giving, giving you words of, um, well, encouragement. Um, and then he's going to spend some time admonishing the believers that admonishment is super intense he is not holding anything back and so i really feel like he takes this time of encouragement to the believers because he wants to make sure that before he gets into this he's already said some things that were pretty tough to hear and now he's and he knows he's going to come into some more things that are really tough to hear and um, he wants to take some time and encourage the believers Give them something that they can they can hold on to uh, as a good news. So let me just read this, um, this section. I'm just going to take each section separately. So for now, I'm just going to read verses 12 through 14. And when we get to um, 15 through 17, I'll read those later. So just starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So these verses are some of actually the most encouraging and loving verses from the beloved disciple. Uh, he has just spent some time, like I said, uh, teaching some very hard things. His purpose in writing this letter, he states in in verse in chapter 5, verse 13, um, he says that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And I, I love that because he's he's saying, look, I'm not writing to people who do not know God. He's specifically writing to those who believe in the Son of God already. But what is his purpose in writing to those who already believe? His purpose is so that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything in this letter points to showing his readers, including us who are here today, that we are to know that we are saved to eternal life with the Father. It's not something that we can think we have. But John wants us to see that we can know it, that it is. we can be assured of who we are in Christ. And John also writes, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He's proclaiming to the people so that they may have fellowship with him and with the other apostles. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So not only will you have fellowship with them, with the apostles and the the teachers, but also with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, these things we write, listen to this, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John's purpose is not only so that you may know that you have eternal life with the Father, but that your joy may be complete. And so as part of this completeness, he wants us to see this encouragement that he has for us in these verses. He wants us to know that we are saved to eternal life. He wants us to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And by writing these things and teaching these things, that our joy may be complete. Just by knowing that He is writing so that my joy will be complete, if I know that, if I'm looking at that and I'm reading and He's saying, I want you to know that your joy can be complete if you listen to the things that I'm writing, then I'm immediately tuned in. Because I want to know how to make sure that my joy is complete. I want to know what John has to say for me. And so I'm excited for what the Holy Spirit has to teach me in this passage because it will help make my joy complete. John wants his readers to have a full and complete joy, to be in true fellowship with him and other believers in Christ. The problem is that there was so much false teaching in the church. We've been learning about a lot of false teaching pastor went through a whole book and now he's going through a second book that is talking about this false teaching well john's dealing with false teaching too and he wants to make sure that there's no confusion as to what is true and what is false because this false teaching sometimes can be confusing it sounds right in some ways and so it's easy to follow and these false teachers were teaching that it was possible for a, Christian to be, for a person to be a Christian and yet still live in open sin. It was their teaching that the flesh and the soul was separate. Your flesh is physical. Your soul is spiritual. Therefore, whatever you did physically would not tarnish your soul. This was the false teaching. They taught that it did not matter what you did in your flesh as long as your soul was good to go. So John takes the time to address this as false teaching, declaring that if you walk in the darkness, then you do not practice the truth because God is light and there is no darkness in him. John says in verse 1 of the second chapter here that the reason he is writing these things is so that you may not sin. If you go back and you look earlier in chapter 2 before what we're going to be looking at, Um, we see that if we know Christ, we will keep his commandments and not live a life defined by sin. John then moves in this chapter on to make sure that there is no strife among true followers of Christ. There was division in the church, people fighting amongst themselves, anger was creeping in because of some of this false teaching. John tells his readers that one of the commandments that you must obey if you are to be in Christ, if you are in Christ, one of the first things you must do is to love your brother. So he finishes this section going into um, where we're coming into. He says, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that would be hard to hear, I can imagine, for some of these people as they have this strife in the church, not loving their brethren. Here you are, you you know Christ as your Savior. You're confused as to the truth because of these false teachings. Others are telling you that you're not right. There's division and anger. You feel it. Then you read this letter from one of the most beloved men that walked with Christ. He was the beloved disciple. He was a giant of the faith, and he says that if you have anger for your brother, then you are walking in the darkness, and God is light, and there is no darkness in him. You hear that you are blind because of this darkness, and he's saying that you're not saved if you don't love your brother. This is hard teaching, and if I was there and I was having these issues, my heart would be torn in two. I would not know what to think or what to do. I would begin to doubt and despair. And I think John knows where his readers are at and what they might be thinking at this moment as he's teaching this, going through here. He also knows that there's hard teachings that he's going to have to hit on later. And so, like I said before, he takes this time to encourage the readers of this letter because there's hard teachings in the past hard teachings in the future, let's take some time and express encouragement to them. So I'm going to read it again. Listen to the encouragement from the beloved disciple. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Years ago, there was a Dear Abby column that ran a story by a retired school teacher. Excuse me. One day she had her students take out two sheets of paper and list the names of the other students in the room. Then she told them to think of the nicest thing that they could say about each one of their classmates. Write it down next to their names. She took the papers home that weekend and compiled a list for each student of what the others had said about him or her. On Monday, she gave each student his or her list. Before long, everyone was smiling. Really, one whispered. I never knew that that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know anyone liked me that much. Years later, the teacher went to the funeral of one of her former students who had been killed in Vietnam. Many who had been in that class years before were also there. After the service, the young man's parents approached the teacher and said, we want to show you something. Mark was carrying this when he was killed. The father pulled out a wallet. And in the wallet was the list of all the good things that Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. A group of Mark's classmates overheard the exchange, and one smiled sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's on the top desk in my drawer at home. Anything another said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. I put mine in our wedding album. I bet we all saved them, said a fourth. I carry me with all, at, at all times. At that point, the teacher sat down and cried and, said that, and she used that assignment in every class for the rest of her teaching career. And that story shows how much we all need encouragement. The apostle John has been dishing out some strong words as he warns the flock about the false teachers who were trying to deceive them. And he knows that these young or old believers need encouragement. John wants his readers at whatever stage in the Christian life they are at to consider what God has done in their lives. He wants them to know that they have authentic faith. So in this passage, John points out three different groups. First, the little children, the young men, and the fathers. And it's debated as to what these designations even mean. Is John thinking of them as physical ages or as spiritual maturity? Or is there even another option? Most commentators don't subscribe to it being physical ages, but spiritual maturity. I think there's definitely some validity to those being separated based upon spiritual maturity. But in another sense, these things should be true of all believers. Whether you are spiritually mature or young in the faith. I think that there's hold on I think that there's definitely some validity to those being separated upon spiritual maturity but in another sense everyone needs to hear these words John is trying to encourage all of his readers he wants them to know that there are some things that they are doing that is not to be done by any true follower of Christ but he also wants them to know that if the things in these three verses are true then they can rest in the fact that they are really saved and are just following some bad teaching and, and they need to quit. John begins with the little children. He says, he designates a frequently used term. It's a term of endearment to all believers. He says little children. He uses it five other times in this letter. We see it in verse in 2, verse, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Also in verse 18 of this chapter in chapter 3 verse 18 in chapter 4 verse 4 and in chapter 5 verse 21 he calls the believers little children because of this we can assume that here John is wanting to address all believers everyone John has already given two other reasons as to why he is writing this letter we've seen those first we've already read in chapter 1 verses 3 through 4 that he wants us to have fellowship with us, with him, and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We've also looked at chapter 2, verse 1, where John gives another reason that he is writing, so that we may not sin. John now tells his readers another reason he is writing. He is writing because we are Christians. And that's what he's saying. He's encouraging them that if they didn't already know that they were truly Christians and followers of God, then he would not be writing to them. He says that he is writing because their sins have been forgiven for for his name's sake. As someone has well said, not a step can be taken in the Christian life until we know that we are forgiven and accepted. In light of the hard truths that he has just written, he wanted his readers to know that they were children of God who had received his unqualified forgiveness and eternally accepted in the beloved Christ Jesus. Spurgeon says that the child of of God who was born but yesterday is not as completely sanctified as he will be. He is not as completely instructed as he will be. He is not as completely conformed to the image of Christ as he will be, but he is as completely pardoned as the full-grown saint. He that just now passed the gate of pearl Did you not hear the sound of the shout as he entered, like a shock of corn fully ripe that comes in his season? He, I say, was not more truly pardoned than you, who but an hour ago believed in Christ unto the salvation of your soul. The dying thief had not many minutes found mercy, and yet the Lord Jesus said to him, Today shall you be with me in paradise. It is plain, therefore, that he had been perfectly cleansed in that moment. So when John is writing here, he says that the little children, you have your sins have been forgiven. And that verb forgiven is in the perfect tense, which speaks of a past completed action that has a present and in this instant permanent results. You could also say your sins have been put away for you permanently. Our sins were put away at the cross. Our Lord cried on the cross. It is finished. The atonement was completed and finished at the cross and became forever the all-sufficient and all-efficient payment for sin. John goes on to explain why or how their sins have been forgiven. How can he be so certain? He explains that it is for his name's sake. Whose name? Whose name's sake are we saved for? Are we forgiven in? And that is the name above all names. The reason their sins are forgiven is because of Jesus, who accomplished the work of His Father. Had assigned His Father had assigned him a work, and he completed it as the God Man. So that on the cross, our Savior could definitely cry out to Telestai, "It is finished." The word "for" in our passage could also mean "through." So it could also be through his namesake, not just for his namesake, but through his namesake. And this is important. John is emphasizing that we cannot save ourselves. We can have assurance in our salvation, but only because it is in, through, and for the name of Jesus' sake. It is in his work and in his name that we find our salvation. Acts 4.12 says there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. This is an important doctrine that we must come to know. If we save ourselves, then there can be no assurance of our salvation. If we save ourselves, then John has no encouragement for us. If we do it on our own, then there is no hope. Only, Our only assurance, our only encouragement, our only hope is in the name of Jesus Christ alone. God forgives sin not because of any merit in the sinner, but because of the infinite merit of our Savior. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Too many believers try to punish themselves for past and present sins instead of standing on God's assurance of sins forgiven and even better, hiding in the promise keeper himself. John is encouraging his readers to not forget that their sins have been forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. He has already bore the full wrath of God on our behalf. The story is told of a time many years ago when a father and his daughter were walking through the grass on the Canadian prairie, and in the distance they saw a prairie fire which would soon come upon them and engulf them. The father knew there was only one way of escape. They must quickly build a fire right where they were and burn a large patch of grass around them. When the huge prairie fire drew near, they could stand on that section Because it had already burned. When the flames did approach, the girl was terrified, but her father assured her, The flames cannot get to us. We are standing where the fire has already been. So it is with those who are forgiven. They have their standing in Christ, where the flames of God's wrath have already been, and therefore they are safe. John then addresses the fathers here. Verse thirteen comes to the fathers. I do not I do think that he's thinking of those who are more spiritually mature, those that have gotten beyond what the writer of Hebrews has called the elementary teachings of Christ. But I caution that if you are new to the faith and not spiritually mature yet, that you do not close your ears to what John has to say. These words are not just for those that have lived with Christ for many years. They are for all believers. It is not just for those that have known him from the beginning, as John says, but for everyone. When John speaks of the fathers knowing him who was from the beginning, he is saying that they know him by experience because they have a personal experience with him. They have come into a a personal relationship with Jesus. Many people know who Jesus is but they lack a genuine and personal relationship with him. This, of course, begs the question, do you know him or do you just know about him? William Barclay had this to say about the knowledge of Christ. There is the gift of increasing knowledge of God. John, no doubt, was thinking of his own experience. He was an old man now. He was writing about 100 A.D., For 70 years he had lived with Christ, and he had thought about him and come to know him better every day. For the Jew, knowledge was not merely an intellectual thing. To know God was not merely to know him as the philosopher knows him, it was to know him as a friend knows him. In the Hebrew, to know is used of the relationship between a husband and a wife, the most intimate of all relationships. When John spoke of the increasing knowledge of God, He did not mean that the Christian would become an ever ever more learned theologian. He meant that throughout the years, he would become more and more intimately friendly with God. So in our passage, it says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him. Who is the him? And we know it's Jesus. John never uses the pronoun him when speaking of the father. He always uses Father or God in reference to God the Father. Therefore, we can conclude that this him is Jesus Christ. The beginning could refer to the beginning of all things, but more likely it refers back to when the fathers first were called by the Spirit to know Christ. Throughout their walk with Christ, they have come to know him intimately with a deep communion, walking closely with him day by day, Their knowledge of Christ was so intimate that they should not be led astray by the false teachings creeping into this church. It should be our prayer, as it was Paul's, that we should come to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, Philippians 3.10. H.A. Ironside once said, it is this personal knowledge of God that constitutes one, a father in Christ. This is the height of Christian maturity and comes through a life of intimate fellowship with Christ. How do you get to know a person? By living with them day after day. How do you get to know Christ? By living in intimate fellowship with him day after day throughout years. You know him when he ministers to you in your sorrow. You know him when you put Christ first and find your chief joy and gladness in him to know him this is to be a father in christ john now moves on to the young men these would obviously be the little children um this is sorry these would obviously be between the little children and the fathers in terms of maturity but again i pray that you listen to these words no matter where you find yourself in christ John says his purpose in encouraging these young men is because they have overcome the evil one. Knowing that in Christ the devil is a defeated foe, they have in faith resisted the devil and put him to flight. Such a position of victory must be maintained daily with a firm faith in Christ and a resolute striving against the devil and his temptations again i quote from h a ironside in the book of revelation we read they they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony when john said i write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one we can be sure that it is through their faith in the atoning blood of christ that they have been able to turn away from the world that crucified him have you turned from the world that rejected your savior and clinging to him taken his place of rejection If so, then even when Satan seeks to terrify you by bringing before you your past sins, you are able to plead the infinite value of Christ's atoning blood. That is the way to overcome. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. John now comes back to further encouraging the believers. He says he is now writing to the children. This is a different word than he used before when he called them young children. In verse 12, John uses the word technion, which means little children. It's translated little children. And he uses this same term in affectionately, designating all believers. Everyone he is writing to is technion, little children. But here, John uses the word Pideon. When I was reading in the English, it was easy to just think that this is a parallel passage to what he had already said to the little children, just as he does later with the fathers and the young men, using the same words. But here, in the English, it looks like it's similar, but it's not. Why did John use a different word? If John's talking to the same people and he's just repeating this for emphasis, why use a different word? I think that John is addressing all believers when he says little children, but here he is highlighting someone that is young in their faith. First, we must know that we are forgiven in the name of Christ. Next, we know the Father. The youngest in the faith know these two things. Pideon stresses the need for moral training and guidance, young in experience but doesn't that really apply to all of us W.E. Vine says the realization of the fatherhood of God belongs to the youngest believer the spirit himself bears witness with their spirit that they are the children of God the fathers have entered into the deeper truths relating to Christ as the center of the divine councils the babes have learned to cry Abba Father because they have been born to God John writes now again to the fathers. Gone through the little children, the fathers, the young men, back to the children, now to the fathers. He doesn't say that much different than what he said to the fathers before. When I was reading this before, I was like, shouldn't he say something different? Why is he saying the same thing? I want him to say something different. I want him to encourage the fathers with something new like he has done in the babes in the faith and the young men, but he doesn't. He just repeats what he has already said. But if you think about it, what could be greater than a daily intimate walk with Christ and a reminder that that's what we need every day? When we are complete, we have an intimate relationship. When our joy is complete, that's why he's writing we have an intimate relationship with our Savior. Our joy is made complete in the fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And even with those that take up the cross daily and follow Him. Finally, John writes to the young men again. He basically says something similar to what he said before, but it is distinct and importantly different. The first time John addresses the young men, he says that they have overcome the evil one. This time he adds... Something else that they have accomplished. It might be construed from the first encouragement to the young men that John was encouraging them to do something in their own strength. But here, so that you would never think that they could defeat Satan on their own, John clears up the matter. The secret to them being able to overcome the evil one is because of the word of God that abides in them. Surely John is remembering where the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 9-11, which also references the young men. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is only when you allow the word of God to abide in you that you will overcome the enemy's schemes. The Lord Jesus overcame the tempter every time by citing scripture the only way that you will grow strong spiritually and overcome the evil one is to let the word of god dwell in your heart by meditating on it day and night and treasuring it in your heart While i agree that john could have been differentiating between different maturities in the faith and probably was i also see that he's encouraging everyone in each of these different sections all christians have their sins forgiven in the name of Christ. It should be the goal of all believers to know Christ and to make him known. And there should not be one among us here today who hasn't overcome the evil one and is continuing to fight the evil one through the knowledge of the word of God. Every believer in Christ is called on to put on the armor of God and fight the good fight against the devil and his demons. And as we shall see in the next section, fight against the love of the world. While we are called to put on the armor of God and fight, John is assuring us, as Paul has done elsewhere, that the battle has been won. We are assured of victory in our fight because the battle was won on Calvary when Christ died on the cross, taking our punish- punishment on himself. Then three days later, he overcome the ultimate enemy. He overcame death as he rose from the grave. Yes, Satan is still the prince of the power of the air, And he can tempt us, but he has no power over us if we spend our days in fellowship with Christ. Now that John has interjected this encouragement, he can go back to letting his readers, including us, know what is required of a Christian. John wants us to know that we have eternal life, and he sets before us tests so that we can test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. The first test is that you do not sin. A Christian will not walk in the darkness and sin. He will fight to walk in the light because God is light. Peter, quoting Leviticus, said it this way, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The second test, again, we're looking back in 1 John before we get to our passage. The first test was that you do not sin. The second test is a test of brotherly love. We saw that just before this section. And now in contrast to brotherly love, John gives the third test. The third test, if we are to know we have eternal life, then we must not love the world or the things in the world. Let me read verses 15 through 17. John writes, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Do not love is a present imperative coupled with a negative participle. I did not know that. I had to read that, so don't think I'm really smart. Do not love. Present imperative coupled with a negative participle. In the Greek, it is meagapete, which can have one of two meanings. In one meaning, that this combination signifies an action which is currently being practiced and must be stopped. In this use, the implication is that the readers were loving the world to some degree, John is saying, stop having a warm regard for and an interest in the world. Do not cherish the world. Stop exhibiting affection for the world. Stop showing special devotion to the world. Do not strive after the world. The second sense of the present imperative with a negative participle is as a prohibition of a practice which could also be paraphrased like this. Do not begin loving the world. This sense does not necessarily assert that the readers were actually loving the world yet. Loving the world was a danger which the readers must be continually on guard against. Sure, we will falter and fail to keep this commandment from time to time. Only Jesus could keep it perfectly. But John is not advocating perfection he is advocating direction. In other words, we can look at our life and determine from the things we watch, the places we go, the items we purchase, etc., whether the general direction of our life is heavenward or not. The world that John refers to here does not refer to the earth or even the people of the earth, but rather the world as a system with its possessions, positions, and pleasures, all radically, irrevocably alienated against the Almighty. The idea here is of the world of men in rebellion against God and therefore characterized by all that is in opposition to God. This is what we might call the world system. It involves the world's values, the world's pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. John says of this world that the world lies in the grip of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19, that it rejected Jesus when he came, John 1, 10, that it does not know him, 1 John 3, 1, and consequently that it does not know and therefore also hates his followers. H.A. Ironside, favorite of mine apparently, said that the world is a system that man has built up in which he is trying to make himself happy without God. It is not worldly to follow a career in politics, to get married, to have children, to be involved in earning a living. None of these are what John has in mind when he says the world, nor is John concerned about the list of taboos. Every group of Christians has a list of activities or practices that are frowned upon. Christians tended to think in days gone by that worldliness was a matter of whether one drank or smoked, or played cards, or went to dances, or went to the movies. Such taboos vary from age to age. What was forbidden ten years ago is allowed today. Such banned activities also vary from culture to culture. In one part of the world, Christians might frown upon wearing earrings, or women wearing pants, or men having long hair, or whatever. But none of this is what John has in mind when he talks about the world. To be worldly is to operate on the same principles as unregenerate, unsaved people. It is to think and act out of selfishness, greed, pride, and personal ambition. It is to have a selfish desire for the things that you do not have and a sinful pride in the things that you do have. Rather than living to please God who examines the heart, the one who loves the world tries to impress people who look on things outwardly. For example, if you refrain from watching certain movies or television shows because you want to impress others with how spiritual you are and you take pride in you're not watching those things and look with contempt on those who do, you are actually being worldly by not watching those movies or shows. Not loving the world is not a matter of keeping some list of do's and don'ts. It is a matter of the heart and where it is motivated to be before God. In other words loving the world is primarily an attitude that is motivated motivated by wrong desires and wrongful promotion of self a poor man who does not have many possessions may be very worldly because he desires those things as the key to his happiness but a wealthy man may not be worldly at all because he uses his possessions as a steward of God and as a means of promoting God's purpose and glory if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. This is what John says next. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is not a statement declaring that the Father will not love those that love the world. He could, at some point, love those who love the world, or he could never love those who love the world at any given time in the future. John is declaring that if you love the world, you will not love the Father. If, you, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in that person. If anyone, John is declaring that you will not love the Father. The love for the Father will not be in the one that loves the world. Or conversely, our love for God should be the ruling principle of our lives. The only way that we can overcome the strong desires of the flesh and the world is to be consumed with loving god John is just repeating what Jesus said in Matthew 6:24 no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and wealth in the same way because the search for wealth was part of god's of the world system you cannot serve god and the world there is no room for double occupancy in the Christian's heart. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Loving the world is, at its core, a matter of the heart. If your heart is captured by the world, you will love the things of the world. If your heart is captured by the love of God you will be drawn to him and to the things of God. The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If you are loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, then there is no room to love the world. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, maximum effort, for from it, flows the springs of life we must ever be watchful of our desires and what we are doing with those desires what we desire reveals everything about our heart do you desire to love and worship and serve God or do you desire to love the world and the things of the world Spurgeon says if any man loves the world the love of the father is not in him and he says, These two things are such deadly opposites that they cannot live together. Where the love of the Father is, there cannot be the love of the world. There is no room in us for two loves. The love of the world is essentially idolatry, and God will not be worshipped side by side with idols. Isaiah 42:8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah forty eight eleven says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? Thomas Watson said that you may overlove the creature. You may love wine too much, you may love silver too much, but you cannot love God too much. It is our sin that we cannot. That we cannot love God enough. How weak is our love to God? If we could love God far more than we do, yet it can never be proportionate to his worth. So that there is no danger of excess in our love to God. When we get to heaven, or even when we get near the end of our life, will we ever say, I wish that I had just loved God a little less. May it never be. We must choose our love, either the world or God, but not both. John then gives us a little more insight as to what, he, what makes up this world. And we move into verse 16. These three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These things are not from the Father. They are from the world. We know that God never tempts anyone, James 1.13. These are the ways that we are tempted by the devil, the world, and the flesh. All temptation will fall into these three categories. Eve was tempted by the serpent in these three ways, and certain Satan used the same ta- tactic with Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism. Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was good for food, which was an appeal to the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. This appealed to the lust of the eyes. She also saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This appealed to the boastful pride of life. The same pattern occurs in Satan's temptation of Jesus. Satan urged Jesus to turn the stones into bread, the lust of the flesh. He showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, offering to give them to him, the lust of the eyes. He encouraged him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, which could have been a source of pride in his miraculous accomplishment. The lust of the flesh is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have something apart from the will of God. The pride of life is the desire to be something apart from the will of God. The first desire appeals mainly to the body, the second to the soul, and the third to the spirit. To yield to the lust of the flesh is not to love the Father, but the world. Lust refers to a strong desire or impulse. We can have a lust for almost anything. Maybe we lust after cars, or money, or video games, or friendships. Flesh refers to our fallen nature, which we still struggle with even after salvation. The lust of the flesh, therefore, includes any strong desire or inclination of our fallen nature, including all activity that stems from self-seeking, godless nature that we are born with. It is relentless, slavish pursuit of evil that exceeds the proper limits of what is good, reasonable, and righteous. Any attitude, speech, or action that opposes God's law. Those sinful attitudes and actions are primary characteristics of the world's system, and are irresistibly appealing to the corruption of the unconverted soul. Many natural desires are legitimate if they are kept under control and used in the sphere for which God designed them. The desires for food, companionship, or friendship, sex, and security are legitimate when we keep them within God's limits and when we do not allow them to usurp God's rightful place in our hearts but they become sinful when we seek to fulfill them in selfish, disobedient, ungodly ways. To yield to the lust of the eyes is not to love the Father, but the world. This points to the sinful desires of greed and covetousness, to want that which we do not have, but others may have. It also refers to the desires that stem from false, superficial values. Buy this bigger, newer home, and you will be happy. Find a beautiful woman or a handsome man and you will be satisfied. Get the perfect job and have plenty of money and your inner longings will be quenched. Having a bigger home or a beautiful wife or a handsome husband or a different job are not bad things. It is our reaction to them that makes them desires of the world. God is the giver of all good things and we should be content with what he has given. If he sees fit to give a bigger home, then praise God. If not, Then praise God. You can be poor in things, but still love them, while one who is rich in things can see them as a and use them as a good steward of God. So things are not the problem. John does not say possessing these things in itself is wrong. The problem is someone, as someone has well said, is when the possessions begin to possess us and specifically begin to possess our affections in such a way that it results in an attitude of alienation against God. Any affection of a thing that leads to love of the thing rather than the love of God is what John is prohibiting. Philippians 4.11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Second Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. The lust of the eyes follows this pattern. I see it, I want it, I take it. Have you ever done that? We read in Joshua where Achan says, that when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it, Joshua 7.21. Note the principle of progression of the passion to possess. I saw, I coveted, I took. Note also what he did with his sin. After he saw, he coveted, he took, knowing that was a sin, what did he do? He hid his sin from others. And we think foolishly that we can hide our sin from God. David had the same progression in his sin with Bathsheba. He saw her from the rooftop. He coveted her. Then he took her, and lastly, he tried to hide his sin by bringing Uriah home to lay with his wife and make it as seem as though this baby was his. But due to the honor and righteousness of Uriah, David compounded his sin and murdered him so that he could then take Bathsheba as his own wife, all so he could conceal his sin. We move to the boastful pride of life. To yield to the boastful pride of life is not to love the Father, but the world. While the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes refer to the desire to have what you do not have, the boastful pride of life refers to the sinful pride over what you do have. It is the desire to be better than others so that you can glorify in yourself and your accomplishments. There is a proper sense, of course, of doing your best in school, athletics, or at work, in order to be a good steward of God's gifts and try to bring glory to him. But it is easy to forget that it, he gave you everything that you have and to start boasting in your achievements and possessions as if you attained these things by your own intelligence or hard work. 1 Corinthians 4.7 For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 1 Corinthians 1, So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. Galatians six fourteen. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Christian life is not a collection of do's and don'ts but instead as a faith-filled daily walk surrendered to and guided by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He alone can enable us to bear the fruit of self-control and give us direction through the principle in Scripture. With his help, we can set good standards for our behavior and walk forth into the enemy territory of the world as more than conquerors through Christ. We need to ask God to open our eyes, to open the eyes of our heart, to know the surpassing greatness of His power in us who believe, so that we are empowered to fight the good fight, the good fight of faith, and will not have to suffer the certain consequences of bad choices. A man visiting a distant city made no comment when his friends showed him one of the city's most impressive buildings. Disappointed at his silence, one of the friends finally asked, Don't you think it's beautiful? No, not really, he responded. I've been to Rome, you see. Because he had seen the magnificent structures of Rome in in, in its glorious past, the building his friends showed him did not impress him. It suffered tragically by comparison. CH Spurgeon commenting on that exact story said, "O believer, if the world tempts you with its rare sights and curious prospects, you may well scorn them, having been by contemplation in heaven and being able to able by faith to see infinitely better delights every hour of the day." Believers who through faith in God's word have had a foretaste of heaven, and have considered their glorious spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, are not attracted by the enchantments of the world. They're not impressed by its empty baubles. They're not enamored with its allurements. Recognizing that which has genuine worth and lasting value, they respond to the earthly and temporal by saying, In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. When rescuers were finally able to pull a middle-aged man from the wreckage of a horrible car accident, he was taken to a nearby hospital, but it soon became apparent that he would die. As the chaplain comforted him, the man, who was a Christian, exclaimed, As I look squarely at eternity, I realize now just how much I wasted my life on things that do not matter. So finally we come to verse 17. John warns his readers that not only does it mean that there is no love for the Father if we are enraptured by the world but it will do no good to love the world as it is passing away. There will come a time when this world will no longer exist. It will be burnt up and those that loved it will be burning eternally in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. The world truly has nothing to offer save death and hell. That is all it can promise. John finishes this section with this statement, the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. This is in contrast to those that love the world. Those that love the world will spend eternity dying and never living, they will spend eternity in perpetual anguish, eternal pain and suffering. But those that do the will of the Father will spend their eternity living. They will be with the Father and His Son in eternal worship and joy. But you may ask, what is the will of the Father? It says, but the one who does the will of the of God lives forever. What is the will of the Father? Let me just say that John is not talking about God's secret will for your life, whether you should take a different job or which college you can choose to go to or whether you want to move or buy a new house or even other things like that. So often believers are asking, and there are even books out there trying to tell us what we should do in our life, what the will of God is in our life, and how we can perceive these trivial matters but John is talking about the revealed will of God for our lives what he has given to us what we do know that God wants for us is there anywhere we can truly find out what God's will is for our lives have you ever asked what is God's will for me well today is your lucky day because I'm about to tell you No, I don't have a crystal ball that can tell me the future of what decisions you should make. No, I can't speak directly to God, nor hear his replies. He does not speak to me audibly as I pray. He doesn't visit me in my dreams. I am definitely not a prophet. But God has revealed exactly what his will is for you and for your life. It is no secret. and I will just reveal a few. Romans 12.2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Corinthians 7.9-10, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 1 Thessalonians three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 John two one a and 3 My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2.10, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And I got one more. For those of you who may be thinking, but how does this help me decide if I should take a new job, or whatever it is, This one should help. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Stop spending time trying to decipher the secret will of God for your life and focus on accomplishing the revealed will of God for your life. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. The world is passing away let us pray Father we thank you for this day again we thank you for your word we thank you that you have revealed your will will to us you speak to us through your word and give us the knowledge of what you desire for us Father, I pray that we will not love the world nor the things in the world, that we will understand that you desire for us to be holy, for you are holy, and we know that we cannot do that on our own, so we pray for your spirit to guide us, lead us. We thank you that he encourages us and comforts us when we do fail, so that we can Get back up with your strength and continue to move forward, continue to move heavenward. We give you glory and praise for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.